Today's a, a day in the church calendar, which means the schedule of festivals and important dates in church called Ascension. And although Ascension happens always on a Thursday, we often celebrate on the Sunday. And I'd like to speak to you today a little bit about Ascension and what it means and why it's important for us. One of the first things that's hard to understand about Ascension, if you were listening to the, the lesson from the Bible today, is that it's a story about how Jesus, after he dies, after he rises from the dead, after he visits his disciples to show them he's risen from the dead, then he departs and is carried up into heaven. And so the disciples are left there looking up, wondering where he is and what they're about to do. But then the gospel tells us afterwards, they go to the temple and they worship and they praise and they're full of joy. One of the things that makes ascension really hard to understand is why it is people seem to be so excited that Jesus, the person they love, leaves them. You know, just this summer, I'm going to be going back to Vancouver where I grew up because my parents are enjoying their 50th wedding anniversary. And I'll go there and I'm going to see one of my brothers uh, I haven't seen in four years, I think. And then I'm going to see my little niece and because uh, she lives with my brother and his wife in Thailand, I rarely see her. I'm going to go and then I'm going to see them get onto their planes and go off somewhere else and you can bet I'm not going to throw a great celebration saying, oh, how wonderful it is, I won't see my niece again for years and years. It's an odd thing to do, isn't it? So why do we celebrate Ascension? Why is this a great thing that the church thinks is so awesome that Jesus rose into heaven? I'm going to give you two good reasons, although I think that there's lots. But these two, I think, really speak to us today and I think are particularly important for us to hold on to. Here's the first. The first reason I think the ascension is so wonderful and important is that it tells us that the one who looks down upon us from heaven, the one who is called to be our judge and the one who rules over us as king, is somebody who knows exactly what it's like to be a frail human being and for that reason will give us a great deal of understanding and sympathy. There's an interesting uh, verse or a few verses in part of the Bible called Hebrews and that part of the Bible called Hebrews is surprise, surprise written to Hebrews. But what's really interesting about it is it's written to people who uh, in the ancient world would go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship and they're grieving because after all Jesus has come, he's the Messiah, he's told them great things, done great things and they wonder why could it be a good thing that Jesus is gone. And this is what the letter to the Hebrews says. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's an interesting verse there. It says, uh, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Now, I've been a Christian for a long time, uh, as most people do. I wandered around as a teenager. But in coming back to faith, one of the things that I often have found difficult is to come back to faith and try and pray and worship God when I know I've got a long string of things I've really messed up. Now, I'm sure most of you never have that experience. But it makes it very difficult to come to boldness to the throne of grace, isn't it? Sometimes we want to ask God things, we want to tell God things, we want to question Him sometimes because things aren't going the way they are, and sometimes we really desperately need help, and yet what happens so often? We come to this and we think, well, you know, I didn't do a very good job this past week, or in fact this past month, or perhaps I've wandered for a few years and I wonder whether you really want me back. 
One of the things I find happening on a regular basis living here in the suburbs is not that I colossally mess up, although that does happen, it's that oftentimes the very uh, doldrums and drudgery of everyday life seems to push faith away. I come back to God and I want to ask him something, but I realize I've gone weeks without really paying much attention to him at all. Think of how difficult it is just the daily business of getting into your car and going up Green Bank and then finding that for some weird reason they engineered the road that went from four lanes down to two lanes just when everybody wants to cross here in the Green Belt. And so you wait because some fool on his cell phone has been texting and hits the guy in front of him and you realize you're going to be half an hour late for work. And then you get to work and your boss, as usual, doesn't know what he's doing and doesn't appreciate what you're doing. You get to the end of the day, and what have you done? You don't have a pile of widgets you made and said, wow, I'm really, really proud of my work. Instead, you leave the office saying, I shuffled a whole bunch of papers around, and I don't know whether it made any difference to anything. And then, sure enough, you come back down Green Bank, and what happened? Another fool on a cell phone hit the car, and you get home. And what do you want to do? Do you want to spend an hour in prayer with God, or do you want to Netflix and chill? <laughs> Frankly, Netflix and chill is a very attractive uh, kind of option for most of us, isn't it? And even though I get paid to pray, and so I have a natural incentive, I've got to say, it's not always high in my priority list. What do we do then? We come to God and say, well, I don't know if you really want to hear from me anymore. Or do we listen to what the ascension says? That the same one who experienced futility in life, and I'm sure there were traffic jams when some camel wipes out on the way to Jerusalem, <laughs> to have a person who has actually had the experience of living through the futile daily grind of human life. In fact, Jesus, all jokes aside, often finds himself in the Gospels frustrated deeply by the disciples, the people he chose. He handpicked 12 people to follow him for three years as he goes about preaching and teaching and healing people. I mean, if you can't have your heart and your mind changed by seeing a leper made clean or a blind man seen, then what hope is there? And yet, again and again, the disciples misunderstand what he says. They wander off. They find themselves vying for power when Jesus says the way of salvation is the way of service. Again and again, Jesus says, how, must I, how much longer must I put up with this generation? Jesus knows exactly what it is to be frustrated. And yet we find that in Jesus being ascended into the heavens, the one who sits at God's right hand, the person who hears our prayers is the one who has actually experienced all of this. And although he succeeded where we do not, he knows exactly how easy it is to fail. We come to Christ in prayer saying, you're ascended into the heavens and not as some disinterested king who could care less what we do or think, and not as some judge angry at all times against the people who constantly mess up, and instead one who has sympathy for our human weaknesses. That's a tremendous encouragement for me because all of us have them. Sometimes simple human foibles, sometimes because we absolutely wipe out, and yet again and again Jesus takes the trouble to call people who are indifferent, and also to call people who have wandered far away. Just a few weeks ago, we celebrated Good Shepherd Sunday, where we remember that story of Jesus who goes out to find a sheep who is lost. Why? Because he cares for the sheep, whether they're good, well-behaved sheep or the ones who wander. Jesus cares for his lost sheep, and he's sympathetic to our weakness. So that's the first thing that's important about ascension. And here's the final thing I wanted to bring out. Final thing that I think is really important for us to hold on to during the Feast of the Ascension is to recognize that Jesus has won a victory for us. And for that reason, we can celebrate the victory that Jesus had. You think about the Ascension and you sort of think of Jesus being ascended to the heavens, and what you might forget 
is that this is in fact the story of a person who fights a battle, who wins the battle, and the ascension is the story of him being crowned with victory because of the battle he had won. I was thinking about how to describe this and why it's important, and I was actually thinking back several years ago, back to 2002 when I was living in Toronto. I was going to school at the time, and many of you will know uh, how uh, Toronto is laid out. It gets very, very busy towards downtown. And so housing and, and rental properties are very expensive. But I was going to university, and so because I was married, they have subsidized housing right there at the corner of Bloor and Young. Very, very busy. And if I wasn't subsidized, not a chance in the world could I afford it. But it was cheap. Now, why I'm telling you all this is because in 2002, I watched a very interesting hockey game. The Olympic gold medal hockey game between the United States men's team and the Canadian men's team. And one of the reasons it was so interesting was is because of the story of how the Canadian team began the first round doing very poorly. They lost one game, they tied one game, they squeaked past in one of the games, and they barely made it to the next round. They fought some really difficult battles, and when they finally got to the semifinals, when you got through the first two periods, at the end of the second period, it was tied. And you're wondering whether they're going to pull this out of the hat, and there was a lot riding on it because it had been 50 years since they had last won the gold. Canada prides itself in its hockey program, and yet for 50 years it had been shut out. But third period, they came alive, they won the game. And here's what was so great about that moment. Right there in downtown Toronto, Hockey Central, the second the buzzer went, it almost as if the entire city shouted at the same time. And I looked out of my balcony and I saw Bloor and Young, it was dead, like a desert. And then 30 seconds later, it was like, boom, the entire city was out in the middle of the street, cheering, shouting. And I watched there as what they do at the end of that game is they put all the gold medal uh, around the necks of all of those, uh, those hockey players who had done so well. And you sort of think as you're watching this, you know, I can barely skate. I didn't do anything for this. And yet, what did I feel? So wrapped up that these boys had made a great, great victory here. They had made Canada proud. And I was a citizen of Canada, thrilled that I was part of this. And inside of a city in which everybody was celebrating. Why? Not because they had fought the battle in the arena, they celebrated because they saw the people representing their country did so well and they were so proud they couldn't help but celebrate when those gold medals went on to those people on the ice. You see, that sense that I own a victory, somebody else won, is there because we are fellow citizens and we see other fellow citizens representing us and we rejoice in victory when they are crowned. I think the Ascension does something like that. After all, what are we doing here today when we have a baptism for Willow and Piper? I'm going to baptize them, and then I'm going to, with my thumb, put oil that the bishop has blessed, and I'm going to say, I sign you with the cross, and I mark you as Christ's own forever. What is that saying? It's saying that Willow and Piper, although, of course, they have a long life to live and many questions to ask, and they may wander for a while like I did, or they may always stay close to the church. But what is it that we're assuring them of? that these little girls are citizens of heaven, that Christ is their king, they are members of his kingdom, and that because Christ has won a victory over sin and death, that is a victory they can rejoice in and enjoy all the days of their life, whether they feel like they're victorious at the moment or not. Now, the cross is a difficult symbol to look at because it's a symbol of death. Christ died on the cross. But what does it also tell us? It says this ugly thing, this ugly uh, instrument of torture and execution on which Jesus died was something that did not keep him from bursting from the grave. Unlike all of us, as we stand before the grave and we quake because we know we have no power over it, 
Jesus entered the grave and burst out of the tomb because his power was too great for sin and death to conquer. What hope does that give us in daily life when we find ourselves making resolutions about, I want to be a better father. I want to be a, a better wife. I want to be a better friend. I want to be a better worker. I want to be a better person all around. And what do we do? Well, every time we make a New Year's resolution, we all know what happens. Three weeks later, you're back to the same old thing, and you wonder, should I bother? Because of my sins and temptations trip me up. Does that mean I've lost the kingdom? I don't have a place in Jesus' family? Every time we think about that, we need to look back to the cross and say, no, somebody won a victory for me. That somebody, I am now a member of his kingdom. And I've been a member in his kingdom ever since I had that priest put the sign of the cross on my forehead and say, you are now Christ forever. Regardless of your wandering and regardless of your fear, when you mess up, you've got somebody who's won a victory and will not cast you out. And somebody whose power can be poured out on us to give us strength next time we fail. Or when we stand in front of the grave, as I'm often called to do at funerals, what do I say? Don't worry about it. Death won't hurt. Well, it will hurt. Here's what I do say, though, is to say when you feel powerless in the face of the pain of death, you don't need to be afraid of it because somebody has won a victory for you. You don't need to be too strong and strong enough to defeat the grave. Somebody's done it for you, and he has been crowned, and he sits in the heavenly realms watching over us. When we're frightened in the face of death or frightened in the face of suffering, what can we do? We can say, I don't have the power, Christ, but you do. Thank you for assuring me that I am a member of your kingdom and I do not need to be afraid. Whenever you wonder about why we celebrate that Christ has left us and is seated at the right hand of God, remember those two things. That it means that the person we're praying to has experienced everything we've experienced and knows what it's like to be frail, to be a mortal human being. And he knows very well that when we fall, he need not always be angry at us because he's sympathetic. And remember, secondly, what I just said that when we are defeated in life, there's someone who's won a victory for us. And if you ever wonder whether that victory is really yours, think back to your baptism and say, I was made a promise by Christ's own church that I will be his forever, no matter what happens. Lean on that when you find yourself defeated. And remember that our victorious champion, with a gold medal around his neck and a crown upon his head, has done all that is necessary for us to be saved. Don't be afraid when you mess up. Don't be afraid when you're hurting. And don't be afraid even in the face of the grave. You've got somebody who's won a great victory for you, and you don't ever need to be afraid because that victory will never be taken away.